It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Mike Grossman, CEO of Inflection. Mike has 25 years of entrepreneurial and executive experience and is currently CEO of the country's fastest growing background screening provider. He has also been CEO of a diverse set of innovative VC-funded software companies, including Live Capital, Tempo, SugarSync, and Zeta, all of which were ultimately acquired. Mike's experience in large companies includes leadership positions at Intuit and Johnson & Johnson and board roles at Borders and Quicken. He started his career as a management consultant for McKinsey & Company, both in San Francisco and Sydney, Australia. He holds an A.B. in economics and a J.D. from Harvard University, and he's passionate about his family, his cats, international travel, science fiction films, tennis, creative writing, and quiet irreverence. Mike Grossman, welcome into the corner office. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Ah, it's great to have you here. And we were talking just a couple of minutes um, before uh, we got started, uh, just kind of about the impact on COVID and what's that happening, of course, uh, to your company and the general business. And we're, we're recording this about the uh, middle of March, actually about the 10th of March today. Uh, sorry, June. Gosh, what, what month am I in? I can't even remember anymore. <laughs> 10th of June. We're about three going into four months into this thing, although I don't think this podcast is probably going to be coming out until some months later. But, uh, you know, just kind of tell us how you're holding it. Out. You shared with me a couple of things about how this is uh, truly, it sounds like, positively impacted your business in so many ways. So give us a little bit of a snapshot of, of, of what this has meant in the last couple of months for you. Well, everything was completely fine till around March 10th. Right. And then precipitously, results started going down. And over the ensuing three weeks, they went down about 60%. And then they plateaued. Wow. And then they started coming back. And wow. now, now we're all the way back to where we were on March 9th, basically. Isn't that fabulous? So wow. it's, it's, it's V-shaped and yeah. uh, it's, uh, I'm not sure that's what I would have expected, but no. it's been very good to see. That's a blessing. And you were mentioning before that uh, you've obviously still sheltering place yourself, Meso into the, the fall and many of your staff are, and, and probably a, not, a lot are not coming back. Have you found that you've had a, a level of productivity here that's at or better than what you had previously with folks in offices? Generally, the answer is yes. And mm. now it's worth mentioning that Inflection has, for many years, had a work from home type of culture right, and, and right. to a meaningful extent. Yeah. Uh, we have three main offices, one in the Bay Area in California, one in Omaha, Nebraska, 
and a third in Kiev and Ukraine. Hmm. And then we also have about a dozen people spread out around the planet in various locations. So a large percentage of the folks on the team have for a while worked from home at least two days a week. Uh, But this is the first time we've done it with 100% of the people. And uh, it's gone very well. uh, I I do think we've been more productive. Uh, With that said, you lose something, I think, by not being able to actually see people in person. Uh, And uh, we do the best we can to, to replace that with creative and unusual virtual events. Yeah. Uh, but I think that is that is still somewhat of a challenge. That's awesome. So you've seen at the same level or perhaps even better productivity than, than pre-COVID? Generally speaking, yes. That's fabulous. That's, now, fabulous. that's not to say that people aren't going a little bit stir crazy. I can speak for myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, you know, doing this interview in a room and uh, it's, this room has become part of me in some sense. And, an extension, uh, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Mike, we want to get to inflection and hear all about what you're doing there. But we'd like to start, you know, kind of a little bit about you and learn about your early years. Tell us about, you know, where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Well, I was grew up on the East Coast, uh, was born in Boston, uh, hmm. mostly grew up in the suburbs of New York City. Right. Uh, my father was an IBMer for many years. Oh, right. Um, White Plains. Huh? Uh, close to White Plains. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, he was in the research division. Okay. Uh, and uh, then spent one year that I think had a very big impact on me and the rest of the family uh, out in California. My, my dad mm. got a sabbatical at Stanford. And oh, we, we came west for one year, and it was a revelation. Yeah. <laughs> and we all basically decided that at some point we'd all like to get back uh, to the West Coast, and, yeah. um, and which has, in fact, happened. Right. Um, so I ended, but I ended up going to college uh, on the East Coast. Right. And uh, when I embarked on my career, I initially worked for a set of big companies. I was a yeah. management consultant with McKinsey. I worked at Johnson & Johnson. I was, mm-hmm. I was the world's expert on babies' bottoms. Right, right. Uh, in a, at least a business <laughs> that's, that's, sense. Come in, that's come in handy late in your later years as you've had children <laughs> exactly. yourself, I'm sure. So, Mike, uh, you know, again, about your early family life, tell me about brothers and sisters and uh, what, what did your mom and dad do? I have one sister and she's four years younger than I am. Oh, okay. And then parents, my father uh, is a technologist. He spent oh. 25 years with IBM, uh, mostly right. in the research division and doing interesting things related to robotics and artificial intelligence and, yeah. and, and other interesting projects. And my mother uh, was an art curator oh, cool. initially in the town that we lived in, in, uh, in Westchester County, New York, yeah. uh, and then subsequently at Stanford. And did your sister, younger sister, get as enamored with the West Coast as you did? And did she finally move out there as well? Or She did. did she and, she, 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 <laughs> and she also is similarly enamored with entrepreneurship, but from ah, a different vantage point. So terrific. she lives in LA and is yeah. a professor at USC awesome. in, in the Marshall School of Business. Yeah. Uh, she runs the uh, Greif Center, which is the entrepreneurship center at great, USC. Great, uh, great institution. What were uh, some of the earliest memories you had from mom and dad? Maybe some of the things that inspired you or influenced you when you were young? My earliest memory was living outside of the U.S. Oh, cool. Uh, my, my father at the time was a physicist and had an opportunity to spend six months out of every year living and working in Italy outside of wow, Rome. Wow, fantastic. And so when I was two, three, four years old, a large percentage of the time I was living in a small town outside of Rome. And I think it ended up having a very big impact on me because yeah. the fact that my earliest memories are from outside of the U.S. Uh, has meant that I've often, I've always thought about the global arena 
sure. in anything I've done. And it ended up having a very big impact on my life because many years later, I decided to do something international, ended up going to Australia oh, and cool. lo and behold, met my wife. Oh, nice. Nice. And did you speak Italian as a kid? Did you pick up some of the things? Uh, well, my grand, my grandmother adults? claimed that I did. <laughs> but I think the truth is I knew about 10 words, right, most, most right. importantly, how to say ice cream. There you uh, go. But I don't yeah. think I, I knew very much. And and you went there for how many years as you were growing up? It was, was it over that? a couple of years. Oh, that's uh, great. Each year, about half of the time was spent in Italy. And actually, my sister was born in Rome. Oh, cool. Cool. Any other, you know, influencers or in, in people that inspired you, maybe a coach or a teacher in those early years? Uh, not so much in the early years yeah. uh, as an adult. Uh, and, and maybe we'll get to this. Yeah. Uh, I was significantly inspired by a fellow named Bill Campbell. Oh, sure. Uh, Add into uh, it, right? Yeah. And yeah. uh, I met him actually after I left Intuit. Had but you. Mm -hmm. He ended up having the greatest impact on my career uh, of anybody that I've uh, ever met. He's a legend. And deservedly so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, I, awesome. I, I was very fortunate. I, I spent the better part of a decade meeting with him on average about once a week. And pretty much everything that I do as a CEO, I learned from Bill. That's great. Now, was he an investor or an advisor from some of your other startups? Not an investor. Okay. Uh, he, he just took some CEOs under his wing. Oh, In fantastic. some cases, they were extremely high profile, people yeah. like Steve Jobs and right. uh, and. Uh, Eric Schmidt, but also sure. a lot of less high profile uh, entrepreneurs or people uh, running entrepreneurial companies. Yeah. And he did it because he enjoyed it. And he, he really wanted, liked giving back. Yeah. And he wanted to be helpful. Was, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, there was no other agenda than that. Uh, and it was uh, very impactful for me. Awesome. Were you a good student in school, secondary, high school? I was. I was I was very nerdy. Uh, <laughs> you ran the computer club, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was very driven. And yeah. uh, I guess I still am. And, right. um, but yes, I was, I was always academically inclined. Were you involved in other activities? Did you pursue sports or music, theater, debate, anything like that? Sports would be the big one. Yeah. Uh, I played a bunch of sports growing up. I ended up specializing to a greater extent in tennis as I got to my teenage years. Right, right. Um, so I've got a, got a passion for that, although I have nice. to admit that I think I'm now about as good as I was when I was 11. Well, you've kept it up, though. So that's I, I really haven't actually, which is oh, yeah. which is part of the reason. But it's, uh, there are many excuses, not the least of which is I can't run very fast anymore. But right, uh, right. But yeah, no, I, I I was involved in uh, student government to some extent, uh, mm -hmm. uh, 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 sports, and um, and spent a lot of time with the family. Uh, right. we, we we traveled a lot as a family, and that that also was something that I decided to uh, replicate with my wife's support sure. and, uh, and our own family. Now, you mentioned both you and your sister, you know, pursued entrepreneurial careers. Uh, hers, of course, now generate more to academic. W what about in the early years? Were you involved in entrepreneurial things? Did you have the ubiquitous paper route or maybe other things that you were involved with um, that were making money for you while you were going to school in the no, early days? No, I, I wasn't. Uh, but I, I will say that it was I was pretty young when it occurred to me that entrepreneurship might be the path that I'd want to take. Mm. I, I didn't know what the word was, right? <laughs> but, sure. but the activity, and it actually happened in eighth grade. It, there oh. was a, a one week creative type of effort in my eighth grade where all the students were put into teams and the idea was to create a business. Oh, cool. uh, all of which culminated in a fair where people had fake money right, to spend. Right. And it was a kind of competition where you were trying to generate as much of this fake money as possible through the oh. sale of your products. 
Awesome. Uh, and uh, our team came up with a creative idea, which was to not sell a product, but a sort of a service, really an event, which was the idea that everyone would get to miss class and see a, ah. a, a science show where there'd be various explosions. And um, long story short is that one of my teammates uh, accidentally set the ceiling on fire. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and uh, thankfully, it, <laughs> it was sort of fire resistant, but, but we ended up by far uh, winning the event. And oh, that's uh, great. It, it, it was my first taste of of business, of entrepreneurship, yeah. and yeah. Uh, had a sense that that might be the right direction. Awesome. Awesome. And did you have, uh, you know, uh, jobs that you worked through high school and going into college? Or were you, you know, pretty much just pretty much focused on school during those days? I was focused on school yeah. almost yeah. entirely. And yeah. uh, um, my I, my professional side started when I was in college. So uh, every summer I, I was working. Right. Awesome. So you went to Harvard and uh, obviously a great school, both undergrad as well as got your, your JD. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. Um, did that kind of, uh, was that the school you had your sights on? Did you apply to a lot of different schools? What was kind of your thinking behind it? I, I think it was probably a foregone conclusion with both your parents uh, being academics, right? That you would go to college. That was probably <laughs> never a question. But, well, uh, I actually had wanted to go to Stanford, uh, okay. if, if truth be known, ever since I lived at Stanford um, right. as a kid. and. Uh, for six years, I think on my birthday, my secret wish when I blew out the candles was that I would get to go to Stanford ah. someday. But my parents I, uh, were uh, very clever. And so when I was 16 and college was starting to loom, they decided yep. to take a trip. And, uh, and, and we lived in New York at the time. I was going to so, say, where were you living there? So yeah. York, so they, we took time. a trip that went through Boston. And, nice. Uh, and there was such a big family connection, actually, to Harvard that I, yeah. I kind of switched horses at that point. My, my parents literally met in the freshman union wow. At, wow. at Harvard. Yeah. And so I, yeah. I was I was I was born there, and uh, and so there was a sense of nostalgia that sure. was really uh, not a hard place to fall in love with either. Such a beautiful no, campus. No, it's beautiful, and, and, and of course a Boston's town. a great place. And, yeah. and yeah. then uh, I've always been a Boston Celtics fan. So you know, That's awesome. and it was it was the Larry Bird era. What could right? What could oh, be better goodness. than that? So. Yeah. And then you went straight on to get your your JD right afterwards, from I can tell. And and were you you know thinking about going into a a, a law profession? at that stage or tell us a little bit about your thinking of, of no i actually took a break I, Did I, you? I got a, i got a job as a business analyst uh, oh. kind of a junior consultant at mckinsey in san francisco oh got it okay um, and then decided to go back to graduate school and initially well, i was thinking that i would do a jd mba right, um, right, right. I, I never intended to be a lawyer um i just thought that uh, the jd would be interesting and which it sometimes was. Good business <laughs> and, foundation. Um, and it would right. be useful from a business perspective. Yeah. Yeah. What ended up happening is after my first year of law school, I went to Australia, met my wife unexpectedly, oh, right. and, and found myself in the world's longest long-distance relationship <laughs> back, back at a time when there were no mobile phones and there was yeah. no oh email gosh. or text and the like. A lot of letters. Um, that was pretty all-consuming. And, <laughs> and I realized that doing a JD MBA at that point, which would take four years, mm. uh, was probably not the best course if I wanted to make the relationship work. So Pushing that's why I ended further. up just doing a JD, even though yeah. I intended to go into business at the end. So then you went back to McKinsey, is that right? After you got your JD, I did. Before, it was a negotiated mm-hmm. negotiated settlement with my <laughs> wife, and she 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 had grown up in Melbourne, Australia. She has right. an identical twin sister, and and she, at the time she was a lawyer herself. Okay, I met her at a law firm in, in Australia. Right, and you know we 
we were trying to figure out where to go. And sure. uh, what we ended up compromising on is that I would go to Australia, but she would move out of Melbourne. And so we went to Sydney consequently, and, and I had an opportunity to go back to McKinsey. And so I did. Nice. But I really wanted to get to Silicon Valley. Uh, and uh, it was only a short time later. Right. We were in Sydney for about a year before we came back to the States. Well, you worked for two great companies, J&J, and I know that. I worked at P&G, so you know, we kind of always looked at those, those other great you know, consumer products companies as a, you know, the wannabes. We always got the headhunter calls, of course, to go there. And then, <laughs> and then into it, you were there fairly early on, right, in 93. I think the company was, what, maybe 10, 15 years old at the time? How, how long had Intuit been around when you joined them? When I joined, it was a little bit less than 10 years. I had yeah, actually so I come close yeah. to joining a, a couple of years before then. Mm. But then uh, this was after we moved to the States. My wife decided to make a, a career switch from uh, law to fashion design. Oh, cool. And so we ended up deciding to stay on the East Coast. Um, but it. yeah, I, when, even when I joined, it was still pretty early. They had just merged with a company called Chipsoft, which was mm. the maker of TurboTax. Right, um, right. But that was new. And the whole company only had about 400, 500 people at the time. Early days. Fantastic. And that was kind of the springboard then for you to go do startups. Tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that, Mike. Uh, you know, you had worked for two big, well, relatively big companies. J&J was certainly large. You know, Intuit was growing. They were beyond the startup stage, right at that stage. But then, you know, you went on to a, a series of very successful entrepreneurial things. Going to be another Hewitt and <laughs> start something in my garage. Was it, uh, you know, I've learned what I need to learn now and I want to take more risk. What, you know, what was kind of going on in your mind at the time when you left Intuit? it. And I think it was uh, uh, Live Capital. Was that your first? Uh, yeah, Live Capital was the yeah, first technology yeah. uh, startup that I that I pursued. Right. I would say that I was affected uh, by the way I was brought up. I grew mm. up in a family that where creativity uh, was regarded as a very high priority. Right. Uh, my father is somebody who's always inventing things. And my mother was involved in the art world. And right. so... Uh, even as I ended up going into business, I was always drawn to things that were innovative and hmm. uh, in, the, in the perfect case, doing something that is both innovative, but also has a really big and positive impact on yeah. people. Yeah. Um, so that's what, what drew me to it. I would say it was a creative impulse more than anything else. The other piece, though, is that big companies are fairly political places. And yeah. mm -hmm. I don't like that stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not it's not fun. I'm, I'm much more interested in figuring out how to solve problems and, and have an impact. Uh, and, and so the, the bureaucratic elements or political elements, even in great companies, sure. are, uh, were things that didn't appeal to me. And, and so I, I much preferred to try to chart a different course. Now, were you in management positions before, um, you know, starting up Live Capital and going down that road? I was starting to get into management, I, but I, the largest group of people that I managed while I was at Intuit was three people. Okay. <laughs> so not exactly right. a large group. And, and, and within a few years after that, I, I was uh, running a company that had more than 100 people. Right. So it was right. a big adjustment. I had a very big learning curve. What were some of the learnings from, uh, you know, the management of people uh, in that last job there at Intuit and, you know, reflecting back on some of the things that maybe were foundational for you later on? I think one thing is that <clears throat> when you're an individual contributor, that you're used to doing things all by yourself. Right. And then as you start getting into management, you're relying on other people and you're delegating. And you have to figure out when do you get involved and when do you not get involved mm. and what represents the right level of 
management. Are you micromanaging? Well, that's not good. But on the other hand, you need to know details. Right. And so what's the right level of abstraction? And I think that's something that takes some time to learn. Hmm. I, I think the other thing is that when you're just in a, in a role where you're just doing work individually, your responsibility is more constrained, I would say. I mean, sure. You're trying to do the best job you can uh, for yourself and, and for the group, but it's, it's, it's more circumscribed. Right, but right. when you're managing people, certainly when you're managing a company, you have an enormous amount of responsibility to the folks on the team and by extension, uh, their families. Uh, and so it's, uh, I think it's much more stressful. <laughs> I right, think it's, uh, right. um, and I think it's uh, a very significant uh, responsibility that, that you need to, uh, you know, I know I think about every day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Bill Campbell, wonderful mentor. And again, I'm sure you consider yourself so blessed to, to have worked with him and, and been mentored by him. But, you know, we've also usually have a few tormentors, right, in our past, people that perhaps didn't provide the best type of training or development. And not that you need to mention any names, but was there behavior, particularly since you mentioned kind of the bureaucratic part of a larger company, was there behavior that you saw that you said, wow, gosh, I never want to be that guy or that woman. And you know, not kind of behave that type of way or, or manage people in a certain way. Do you recall any of those lessons along the way? I would say yes. I mean, I will say that the companies that I work for before I went down this crazy entrepreneurial path um, into it, Johnson & Johnson, <clears throat> are, are great companies. And I have yeah. many, well more good many, many more good memories and bad memories. And I met right. a lot of great right. people. But I would say that there were a small handful of people that I worked uh, with or worked for earlier in my career who were mostly focused on getting the approval of their management. Mm, right, right. As opposed to trying to figure out what the right answer was. Yeah, doing the right thing. Uh, yeah, and so yeah. from my perspective, an inordinate amount of time was spent trying to figure out how to spin things or position things mm. to make things sound often better than they were. And not enough time was spent trying to identify what are the things that actually needed to be improved sure. or made better. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that's I don't think that way. I, right. I, right. I, I think that the the nature of business is that there are problems. Right. And that's just that's life, really. But it's but it's also certainly business. And and yeah. I think the responsibility, the challenge, in a way, is to try to figure out how to anticipate those problems mm. or at least solve them when right. they appear uh, and not look away from them, not try sure. to sweep them under the rug, not try to spin or position, uh, but to actually grapple with them and, mm. and address them directly. Yeah, And that's yeah. hard, but I think that that's what integrity demands. Mm. And, Absolutely. and if you really want to build something great, I think that's what's necessary because yeah. otherwise you don't fix the things that need to be fixed. Right, right. Now, you actually had a couple of um, entrepreneurial uh, ventures and then went back to Intuit for about a year. Did they purchase one of your companies? Tell me about no. that transition. No, what happened is that I, I spent 10 years uh, in the company <coughs> that I had co-founded, Life right. Capital. Yeah. And when I came out of that company, uh, the people that I had started Life Capital with for, for various reasons weren't available really to do a new venture. Uh, uh, so 
I was trying to figure out what to do. Uh, it was, uh, it was, some of it was life stage. Uh, right. one, one, one of the key people that I co-founded the company with, uh, he joined the Peace Corps, so he oh, wasn't wow. available anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so what I ended up deciding to do instead was uh, work with a person that I had met it into it, and he had ended up actually as the chairman of Life Capital hmm. and had become a venture capitalist and joined one of the companies he had funded. And okay. it, it led me down a very different path of being really a professional CEO in entrepreneurial companies as opposed to um, to being an entrepreneur. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and now I forgot the question you asked. Yeah. So uh, getting back to Intuit, which, which was kind of an oh, interesting career path. I felt like I was getting pigeonholed as mm. a guy who did turnarounds. Okay. So when I ended up as in this professional CEO context, often the companies that, uh, I would get hired for were companies that really had a lot of challenges and the job yes. was to fix those challenges right. and all companies have challenges. Uh, but these were companies that had received a lot of venture funding and right. businesses had done okay, but not great. And there were a lot of things that needed to be fixed. And I felt like in a way, my scope of opportunity was narrowing hmm. and that the opportunities I was getting all looked a certain way. And I said, you know, let me, let me change things up a bit. Why don't oh. I go back to the thing I vowed I would never do and go <laughs> back to a big company? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I went back to Intuit, which at this point was way bigger than when I had right. left, you know, a yeah, 500 yeah. person company had become a 5,000 person yeah, company. They were huge. Um, yeah. The problem was when I got back, I realized that I really didn't enjoy it at all. Right. And, right. and having run companies at that point for 15 years, it was very difficult to, I, for me at least, to go back into a environment that had uh, many of the kind of bureaucratic and political elements amplified sure. relative sure. to what I had experienced sure. before. Uh, and I very quickly ended up leaving and going back into a CEO role. Yeah. And you did a couple more startups before coming to Inflection, right? You did uh, Sugar Sink, I think, also, yep. and Zeta. Were, were those kind of in the same um, area of, of operations that you'd had before or same kind of software um, provider? No, I started to diversify. So the uh -huh. first part of my career, most of it was spent in fintech. Right. Uh, but Sugar Sink was different than that. Sugar Sync was a competitor of Dropbox. Okay. And so it was a very different uh, Cloud area. storage. Cloud storage, Cloud storage mm -hmm. uh, yeah. mostly business to consumer. Right. Um, Zeta was uh, sort of re tangentially related to SugarSync and in, in that it it related to cloud storage as well, but it was right. in a in a business to business context, and the uh, the primary customer were IT professionals, so they Got they it. were very different, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to mix yeah. things up and yeah. do different things. And were those companies sold then to other companies and then you moved on? Or what, what were the paths of uh, those two companies? Yeah, sure yeah, the, uh, both companies ended up getting acquired. Yeah. And I, that's generally where I found myself uh, right, right. For, for the last decade is um, companies that are venture funded and uh, ultimately uh, getting them to an exit. Yeah. Uh, inflection's a bit different. In the yeah, sense tell us that about I, that. Now, I, uh, kind of, we're at that flight in your, your career. Tell us what you do, kind of the scope of operations. I know you've got two or three different uh, locations, including international. And, you know, give us your, your, your business uh, overview. Yeah, it, I was, I consider myself very fortunate to have been recruited into inflection. So the, mm. the backstory is it was founded by two brothers who were very young at the time. They were mm. university uh, student age. Uh, and 
When was that? How long has it been around? About 14 years ago. Oh my gosh. Okay. And, so and, they, uh... and they ended up uh, with, a, with a concept in the people data area. Okay. Uh, started this business that I would okay. describe as a kind of business to consumer rudimentary background screening right. type of company. Okay. And it started growing very rapidly and they <clears throat> dropped out of school and they went out to the Bay Area and, and raised venture funding and the company started growing very explosively. And, mm. and with that initial product. And then they started thinking about uh, adjacencies, the other products they could build. And one of them uh, was called archives.com, uh, leveraging mm. genealogical data. And they ended up selling that uh, to ancestry.com. Wow. Uh, and around that same time, they saw an opportunity relating to employment-related background screening. And sure. that came about based on the feedback that they were getting from some of their business-to-consumer uh, customers. Right. right. Many of them are small business owners, and they said, "Could we uh, could help them do background screening in an employment context?" So, what started out as a, a skunkworks project, hmm. somewhat by accident, became the the main part of the company. Uh, and so all these years later, the company now is entirely B2B. That's the focus. And yeah. focused on background screening, yeah. mostly in an employment context, but also right. in some non-employment use cases. Uh, and it's doing really well. I, I think that this is a company that can be a uh, billion-dollar company. Mm. So this is not one that I think we're likely to sell anytime soon. Yeah. And we're going yeah. to see how far we can take it. Awesome. You've been there about two years, and I think you said a couple hundred employees in three three different general locations. Tell us a little bit about your yeah, about 150 people, yeah. uh, three main locations. Uh, we are. Uh, again, mostly focused on employment-related background screening. The key distinctions with other folks in the space is that we're focused on small businesses and middle right. market companies yeah. mostly. Right. Right. Uh, the company's heritage and business to consumer meant that there was a lot of online marketing expertise. Sure. And so it's an, there's an online engine which really fuels the business. Hmm. And then we're also a modern Silicon Valley technology company with you know, proprietary capabilities that relate to how we process data, right. uh, and we're exceptionally focused, and this goes back to my intuit days, this philosophy, exceptionally focused on delighting customers. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, and we found ourselves in a market space that's large, has several reasonably big companies that have been around for a long time, that uh, I think are less focused on that. Uh, I right. think the, the thought of the space is commoditized, and, um, and we don't. Right, right. Well, I'm very excited about the company. As we spoke a week or two ago, you know, I, we work in executive search and, of course, all of it's C-suite and we're just in the, in the process of wrapping up a CEO search. And I'm, I'll be clicking on the website soon, Mike, and, you <laughs> nice. know, use, using the products because as you describe the services and the cost versus the, you know, the usual folks I'm looking, I mean, it's, it's a significant saving. So uh, I'll certainly be sharing that with my other recruiter friends. But wh where do you see, I mean, is it mostly that middle market business that are, are using you? Do you also get experience with Fortune 500 as well? Where, where we we increasingly are. So, so the, yeah. the, the business is called Good Hire. Inflection's the company name. Got it. But the, the employment background screening uh, business or product is called Good Hire. Right. We started at the low end of the market. That's how the company got into the yeah. space. So yeah. it's micro businesses, small businesses, and have progressively moving up. That's great. And so increasingly now, we also have mid-market companies as customers and also 
enterprises. Right. And so we have pretty big ambitions. I mean, we, we want to be the number one player in the space domestically and globally. That's awesome. And that's not the sort of thing you can build overnight. Right. Um, right. But it's but it's something that I think I actually believe is achievable. I also say that one of the other points of distinction is um, with others in the space is that we think a lot about not just the employers we serve, mm. but the job candidates themselves. Yeah, sure. Uh, and it's you know talking about responsibility. I think it's very important to handle the job candidate experience uh, in a very um, thoughtful way. Yeah, yeah, um, and. Uh, confidential the, as well as confidential, you know, yeah. but also uh, around uh, issues like fair chance hiring. Right. Right. Um, and there's you know, legislation that, uh, that you know, certainly we're advocates of called ban the box mm -hmm. that try to protect uh, people who have, um, uh, who have been incarcerated uh, right. to have a fair chance when they're looking for a job. Yeah. Uh, we have a set of capabilities called comments for context that allow mm. a job candidate to talk about the ways in which, uh, if they have a record, why, and, and provide right. some, some context for that. Um, so we think of it as a two-sided discussion. Uh, and uh, it's you know, we, we try to approach it from a socially responsible, yeah. uh, inclusive perspective. Love that. Love that philosophy. Great, great approach. Mike, reflect a little bit on your leadership style. How would you say it's evolved from, you know, those early days at McKinsey and obviously J&J &J and into it um, to, you know, your most recent startups and, and clearly how you kind of operate today at uh, Inflection? I think when I was younger, I was more directive and mm -hmm. more involved in uh, do, doing things at a granular level. And over time, I have stepped back from that and uh, and rely more, I would say, on the people on the team. Uh, you know, the key is if you have the right people, you sort of help them and get out of the way sure. to a great extent. Having said that, one of the words of wisdom, that I, uh, the many words of wisdom from Bill Campbell was, you have to know the details. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. I find that I ask a lot of questions. I think I, I to some extent, have always asked a lot of questions. Um, but I especially do now. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I spend a lot of time now just trying to figure out where is it that we have gaps. And right. those gaps could be organizational gaps. They could be process gaps. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about what is it that builds sustainable, scalable success? Hmm. Uh, and, and what does that imply in terms of how the company is run? Um, other factors I think have been pretty consistent from the early days. I've always believed in being very specific about what the objectives were and right. what the success metrics are, uh, and, and, and measuring the heck out of all that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, you came to a company that was 14, 15 years old. I don't know if the brothers were still running it, um, but, you know, you've been CEO there for a couple of years. And, you know, company culture is a very important part of what people look look at and look for, uh, both from a recruiting standpoint as well as the job seekers. You know, what's kind of unusual or unique about uh, inflection from a cultural standpoint? I mean, we're a very values-based company. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have a specific set of values that uh, we adhere to. Uh, and uh, it, you know, integrity is one of them. Transparency is another one. There's, there's right. a set of, of seven of them. 
And they're not just words on a page. I mean, we we take them, I take them very seriously. Uh, we have a process that I've been using now for 20 years where we measure how well people in the company feel we're exemplifying mm. those values. And we publish those results. We share them with the entire company. Awesome. Um, and we show that in terms of the whole company. We show it in terms of geography. We show it in terms of individual departments uh, to try to identify where we can do better uh, and take action. So, so part of the answer is I think that every company has a culture. I, I'm of the view that it's better to explicitly manage that culture mm. as opposed to let it just happen implicitly. So right. actually define it, talk about it, measure Drive it, it yeah. uh, and, and, and so on. Um, I, I will say that inflection is a special group of people. I, you know, I joined the company partly because of that, right. uh, and uh, I think it's still true today. So, I, but I inherited a lot of that from uh, the founders and what existed uh, before I joined sure. the team. And and when I say that, I mean it's a, it's a company that really it's it's a group of people that try to do things the right way. And what I mean by that is high integrity, treat each other well. Uh, the golden rule is one of our right. values, right? And also treat customers uh, in, mm. in in the right way. Uh, and then try to be excellent uh, and yeah. try to be analytically rigorous, try to move fast while being analytically rigorous, uh, uh, try to communicate um, in a very open and, and, and effective way mm. and, and so on. It, I think ultimately the question is how do you build a great company, a world-class company? Right. And it's really, really hard to do. Yeah. Uh, so dynamic and everything is always in flux. Right. Um, so it's it's a project that never ends. But I, I think that unless you set the bar that high, uh, you can never come anywhere close to it. Right, right. Well, bringing good people in, of course, is an important part of that. Um, what do you look for, Mike, specifically when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? I mean, I come back to the values that I mentioned. So mm -hmm. actually, that's part of the hiring process as well. But But sort of abstracting away from that a little bit. I look for people who are nice people yeah. uh, that I enjoy working with and will get along with other folks mm. on the team uh, who care about not just themselves, but the, the group right. uh, and, and trying to uh, systemically and continuously improve. Uh, and people who are, uh, they work hard and uh they're thoughtful. They try to learn mm -hmm. uh, and not defensive. Uh, they're very collaborative. Those are the types of people that, that I yeah. that I look for. Yeah. And do you have specific questions that you ask for that? Is that things that you kind of look for in the resume? How do you kind of get at that in a in an interview environment? Um. Yeah. I, I mean, I. I try to understand who the people are when we sure. when we interview. It's uh, certainly my role in the interview process. A lot of times is, is just trying to understand what motivates somebody, right. and right. I, I like to understand what do they think is their greatest accomplishment, but also what are the greatest failures because mm. we all have had them. That's right, uh, and you know are they self aware enough to, uh, and confident enough to actually talk about talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> all that yeah. i think that's that's an important issue yeah. um cuz when you work with folks you want people who are 
comfortable saying, you know, something I didn't do this right, <laughs> right, right. Um, and we can do this better, yeah, as, yeah. as opposed to you know trying to avoid that. Humility is a is definitely a a, a very good characteristic to have. <laughs> bringing someone I, in an organization, I think humility is a really important yeah. Um, yeah. characteristic. Um, but it's sort of the it's humility combined with confidence. Um, it's the blend of those two, yeah, I think. Absolutely. Well, Mike, you've been very generous with your time. We do have just a couple of last questions. And, you know, of course, uh, in these uh, uh, COVIDian times we're going through, whether or not we're post them or not, I think you've you know said earlier in the podcast or before we spoke that it's probably going to be the fall before maybe things return to normal. What do you think the world's going to look like? You know, what changes do you see ahead, you know, on your own company's horizon and perhaps broadly within the, uh, you know, the, 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 the industry in which you're working? I think that we're seeing some of those trends now. Yeah. I think we're going to see more people working remotely. Right. And uh, companies, the, the trend towards having virtual companies with people in lots of different locations, I think, is going to only accelerate. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's, that's something uh, companies that are using products like Zoom right. uh, or, or Google Meets, I think uh, you know, that'll be a, a critical part of the business environment. Yeah, going yeah. forward, I mean, initially, as people start going back into offices, it's complicated because you have yeah. to temperature check and you That's have right. to reconfigure cubes and you have to ensure Sterilize. that people are safe. Yeah. I, yeah. What's interesting to me, though, is a lot of the people who didn't work from home before within our company, as many did, uh, many of them are saying that they prefer it. They're embracing it. Yeah. And yeah. So big surprise. It's I, I think that that's going to be happening to a much greater extent. Uh, and uh, I don't think that, that the toothpaste is going to be put back in the tube <laughs> with respect to that issue. I agree with you. I agree with you. Mike, one last question. We ask all of this of our CEO guests. What you know, career and life advice would you give someone who maybe has their eyes on their own corner office or like you, you know, sees themselves as an entrepreneur and you know wants to start and run a company someday? I think that it's important to not think of life as being linear mm. and that it's better to be open to pivoting and shifting and adjusting because you don't know what opportunities are going to arise. Sure. You want to try to stay in touch with what makes you passionate, what makes you happy uh, and not get overly programmed. You mm. have to do this and this and this in a certain sequence. Because it's not really the way, at least in my experience, that life works. Right, it's right. Opportunities knock on the door when you're not expecting them. And you have to be ready, often in an instant, to open the door right. uh, and, and embrace it. Uh, I think that that's important in entrepreneurship. It's important in business more broadly. Yeah. And I think it's important in life. And we may be seeing one of the biggest changes and opportunities in our culture globally today. You know, I was speaking with a CEO guest not too long ago, and he said, Brant, probably three to five years from now, there will be companies that will be household names that we don't even know about yet, or maybe haven't even been founded, because <laughs> they're going to be the folks who have really led the way and how we really work in the new normal of what's to come. So interesting I times. I mean, change is <laughs> the one eternal constant. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Mike Grossman, CEO of Inflection, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you very much. 
Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.go4roi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.